New Year's beginning, new beginning uh, of the last year. Uh, I just finished a series of workshops at the AGO on meditation and mindfulness uh, and the art. It's finished, and I have to say, when I finished it, I got a little bit of a blues. <laughs> you know, a little bit like uh, when you have an art show, you work so hard at it, and then after that, uh, the show's up, and then you have to pack it, and there's this big empty space, you know, and you're just like, oh, it feels so empty, you know. And then on the same day that I finished it, uh, Obama was giving his uh, last goodbye speech, you know, very emotional and all that. So this was, again, the end of an era, a new one to come, you know. But I couldn't help it to feel a little blue. <laughs> and uh, so <coughs> during, uh, uh, during the festivity of the New Year's, I got invited for dinner at a friend of mine. And uh, <coughs> he gave me a present, and it was a book, a book on uh, Tikhtan Han. And, uh, <coughs> and all due respect to Tikhtan Han, but when I, look at, when I look at the book, I say, oh, again. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I'm saying that is because uh, <coughs> it's a little bit like, you know, in the music business, you know, they are like like uh, the big stars, you know, you become a groupie of, uh, of big stars. And in the spiritual world, you know, they are also the big stars. You know, they, they come with a new album, you know, with a new record, you know, type of thing. And, uh, <coughs> and believe me, I have the deepest respect for Titan Han. He's a fantastic human being and monk, you know, and, and I'm very moved by him. But I'm just being honest, there was a part of me who was saying that, you know. And uh, <coughs> in the midst of my blue, somehow, uh, I just stumbled upon few words, and it was, uh, no mud, no lotus, and he just hit me, boy, <laughs> and I looked below and it was Tiktanahan, <laughs> so I laughed, <laughs> and I said, well, there you are, you know, and I love when life does things like that, you know, send you a little curveball, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but on the other hand, it's important to be honest with your own <laughs> feeling and so let it unfold. You know, it seems that uh, uh, things have to kind of, uh, you know, touch in order to create sparks, you know, give you those insights, you know, sweet surrender. Mm. So <clears throat> I say, oh. Well, it's interesting. I say, of course, I understand that. And, uh, but at that point, I understood it from within, you know, not here, but right here. Yeah. And that was really quite uh, sweet. And uh, so I, I just say, okay. So I, I went to my computer <laughs> and did, okay, no mud, no lotus. And it's, uh, I found this paragraph that Tiktonahan wrote. Usually when I came over here, when I'm asked to give you a little chit-chat with you, <laughs> I like to come up with something personal, not something which is the fruit of my reading, rather something that really is mine, something that it's dear to, you know. So, but this one I'll make an exception because actually I'm going to read you this uh, no lotus, no mud, no lotus, you know, because uh, <coughs> 
think you might like it. Nomad, no lotus. Both suffering and happiness are an organic nature, of an organic nature, which means they are both transitory. They are always changing. The flower, when it wilts, becomes a compost. The compost can help grow a flower again. Happiness is also organic and, and permanent by nature. It can become suffering, and suffering can become happiness again. If you look deeply into a flower, you see that a flower is made only to, of non-flower element. In that flower, there is a cloud. Of course, we know a cloud isn't a flower, but without the cloud, the flower cannot be. If there is no cloud, there is no rain, and no flower can grow, you don't have to be a dreamer to see a cloud floating in a flower. It's really there. Sunlight is also there. Sunlight isn't a flower, but without sunlight, no flower is possible. If we continue to look deeply into the flower, we see many other things, like the earth and the mineral. Without them, a flower cannot be. So it is, in fact, that a flower is made only of non-flower elements. A flower can't be by herself alone. A flower can only enter be with everything else. You can't remove the sunlight, the soil, and the cloud from the flower. In each of our Plum Village practice center around the world, we have a lotus farm. Everyone knows we need to have mud, mud to <coughs> for lotus to grow. The mud does not smell so good, but the lotus flower smells very good. If you don't have mud, the lotus won't manifest. You can't grow lotus flower on marble. Without mud, there cannot be no lotus. It is possible, of course, to get stuck in the mud of life. It's easy enough to notice mud all over you at times. The hardest things to practice is not allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by despair. When you're overwhelmed by despair, all you can see is suffering everywhere you look. You feel as if it is, <coughs> as if the worst thing is happening to you. But we must remember that suffering is a kind of mud that we need in order to generate joy and happiness. Without suffering, there is no happiness. <coughs> this is very radical. <laughs> So, we shouldn't discriminate against the mud. We have to learn how to embrace and cradle our own suffering and the suffering of the world with a lot of tenderness. When I lived in Vietnam during the war, it was difficult to <coughs> see our way through that dark and heavy mud. It seemed like the destruction would just go on and on forever. Every day people would ask me if I thought the world will end soon. It was very difficult to answer because there was no end in sight. But I knew if I said, I don't know, that would only water their seed of despair. So when people asked me that question, I replied, everything is impermanent, even war. It will end someday. Knowing that, we could continue to work for peace. And indeed, the world did end. 
now the former mortal enemy are busily trading and touring back and forth. And people throughout the world enjoy practicing our tradition, teach, our tradition's teachings on mindfulness and peace. If you know how to make good use of the mud, you can grow beautiful lotus. If you know how to make good use of suffering, you can produce happiness. So we do some suffering. <coughs> so we do, we do need some suffering to make happiness possible. And most of us have enough suffering inside and around us to be able to do that. We don't have to create more. <laughs> it's a beautiful paragraph. It really, it's really important to understand that. I think to really truly understand happiness. You know. It really goes straight to the point. You know, and uh, <coughs> not running away from suffering. Yeah. Now, <coughs> for the personal touch, <laughs> the, uh, <coughs> three days ago, I celebrate my 36th uh, year on coming to Canada from uh, my home uh, in uh, France. Uh, <coughs> I was 21. And uh, I came to pay a visit to someone I had met in Guatemala uh, a year and a half b uh, prior. And so uh, <coughs> I was uh, basically, uh, it was in the middle of the winter, of course. And I was this little young Frenchman saying, you know, I had time, I had to perform all my duty, I had to go to the military, you know, in France, everything. I didn't have any girlfriend, so I said, well, why don't I come to Canada for a little holiday, you know? And uh, so, <clears throat> and I said uh, I could pay a visit to the person I met in Guatemala, you know, a year and a half ago. So I came on the 13th of January in the middle of the night on Spadina and College. There was like snow as high as the windows. <laughs> and I was with my little shoes, you know, Parisian shoes and like my little kind of thing like that. I was so unprepared. <laughs> I had one address, but nobody knew I was coming. <laughs> so, I come, it was right uh, at the corner of Spadina and College, and so uh, and it was so cold. So I rang the bell, knocked at the door, for what it took forever, and uh, no one would answer. You know, and then <clears throat> so I thought, gee, this is a <laughs> this is a problem, and so finally I backed up and I looked. There was a few windows, you know, it was old buildings, you know, a few, uh, few windows we actually had the light on. So I made a snowball <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I threw, I threw the snowball on any window, you know, <laughs> and uh, one window opened up and uh, this guy came and said, oh, hello, yeah, what do you want? And I said, well, and I couldn't speak a word much of English, you know. And so he said, but, but, but. <laughs> and so he said, well, no one comes from the front, just the police come from the front. You have to come from the back <laughs> if you want anybody to open the door. <laughs> and, okay, so I understood that much, you know. But the guys, you know, came down and opened the door. And uh, his name is Paul Hogan, a very dear friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, Paul uh, welcomed me. 
you know, in this uh, uh, place, humble place, and studio. He's an artist, a painter. And he was in the middle of uh, doing a big uh, mural and uh, show. So he said, well, you can stay in my studio when I don't work, and uh, when I work, you get out. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, but it was really cold, so I stayed in a corner of his kitchen. And then begin uh, basically a round of like people coming in every day, new people. I mean, the most incredible people. They would be like one day it would be a llama, and another day it would be this beautiful uh, uh, Inuit artist. Uh, the next day would be a 300 pound bolded lady, you know, with like big sunrise with sunglasses, <laughs> and they were all beautiful characters, very colorful, each one of them, you know, quite wonderful. And uh, I couldn't believe I was 21, you know, it was like a big show of characters were coming every single day. And so uh, it, here began really for me a great adventure. So I never really looked back, you know, I was like really from that time on, just basically uh, uh, went straight. But to this day, I always tell myself that if that, if that snowball had ended up 10 feet this way or 10 feet that way, my life would be actually quite different, you know. Because meeting those people really shaped who I am today, you know. I ended up actually married that lady that I met in Guatemala. And fortunately, she passed away uh, shortly after. And, uh, <coughs> But it made me a counter also uh, people like uh, uh, Sunim, you know, and also uh, the practice, you know, uh, itself, in which I'm immensely grateful that this came into my life. And so, I mean, if I had been staying in France, most likely, you know, my life was actually quite predictable because I was trained as a chef. And so, uh, I, and, you know, I know very much like the way it would have pretty much ran through. But here, being... Uh, it was really a great adventure, and I remember to this day when people ask me how long have you been here, and I say, well, I come here for two weeks on vacation, and I'm still on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, mainly because uh, thinking that way, it gives me this kind of a freshness, you know, you experience when you travel, where everything's possible. No fear, you know. Every moment you can reinvent your life, you know, somehow, because you pretty much learn to make home where you stand, you know. And so, and you kind of discover too also that the homelessness is real, the real home in some ways, you know. You need to be at home with your homelessness, it becomes your home, then your entire universe becomes your home. And so, and I, it's my precious, the most precious position <laughs> in some ways, that realization, you know. And uh, so, now, <clears throat> Even though I live here now for 36 years, I still pay attention to what's going on in my own uh, place. My family is there. And that place has changed quite dramatically because uh, <clears throat> we're living really, a, a, really a times of uncertainty, you know, of great fear. And that, it's not only happening in France, but it's happening in many different countries. There's a lot of uh, unease, you know, and uh, a lot of uh, terrorist attack, new manifestation of violence and f fanaticism, you know. And uh, 
I didn't really realize that until I came back just last, um, last fall. And everyone I talked about, you could really sense there were a sense of, uh, there was some really uh, trauma that had happened. You know, some things that they had to let go, things that they had taken for granted, the freedom to move around, you know, without fear, like, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I really, because I had gone through that back in the 70s when there was actually a lot of bombing in Paris. But uh, on the other hand, this time I never felt it so strongly, you know, that sense of uh, trauma. And lately, and no, uh, no later than just uh, last week, I caught a program on TV, on the French TV, which became very controversial. And it was uh, a young fellow who actually was uh, responsible for having influence two of the French guys who actually were responsible for one, one of the most terrible uh, terrorist attacks in Paris. You know. And so knowing that he had done that, he had been arrested and done some, t some time. But now, somehow, uh, find in himself the need to redeem himself and did some kind of a soul searching that he claimed and basically uh, wrote a book and uh, got interviewed for the first time and uh, explained how he ended up there, you know, his story. His story was very much, he went into detail how he came from a very normal family, but then uh, after losing his mom, somehow his father turned into alcoholism and then died, in which he was left totally without family and young enough to really end wanting to really connect with another family and very easily has channeled himself towards uh, people that basically were telling him that he could do really some good you know in the world by becoming basically uh, an extremist <laughs> you know but so he was in a way uh, very uh, uh, ready for the picking, you know, he was kind of a weak, uh, highly influenceable, you know, and then he got really totally conditioned into uh, doing things like that, you see. So it was a, <coughs> it was quite in some ways um, touching in the way what was touching is in the level of clarity he could explain what had happened to him, you know. And, um, and I always kind of, uh, when I learn story like this, there's always a part of me in which I fear, you know, like uh, I think because I find it's important. We always think other people, it could happen only to other people. But the truth of the matter is story tells us that each one of us really have that ability to really being really transformed and manipulated, especially at a younger age and at a certain time, you know. I even, you know, uh, I worked on that subject uh, through my artwork at a certain period. I created a piece who actually deal with that issue. And I was doing research. And doing my research, I stumbled upon like a military school in the United States in which young people, like from the age of like 17 on, 
deliberately go into those schools in, in order to be subject to a conditioning in which they can allow themselves to dehumanize the people who are in front of them in order to be a better soldier. You see, this is like pretty radical. <laughs> so um, when this morning I heard all of us saying, you know, that uh, seeking harmony, peace and harmony, you know, to all beings, you know. It's, uh, it's, uh, we never should take that for granted when we actually do say that in time of uncertainty like we live now. It's very important to really uh, recognize how important it is to anchor ourselves to those values. And uh, <clears throat> because uh, I see now with what's going on like uh, all over, you know, with hap happening in the United States and in the world, we are really creating camps, you know, like it's really one side against another, all that kind of things. And so it creates fear, fear for the others, and uh, fear for our, from, from ourselves, really. So um, it's very important now that we really embrace the idea to keep really a cool head and a big heart, you know, be able to see ourselves into. Uh, in some ways, uh, trying to kind of really understand and embrace, in some ways, uh, the best of all beings, you know, and then you know never failed to address that. So <coughs> I was watching this um, uh, <coughs> this documentary. I mean, that this uh, uh, interview. But what was interesting is that in the same program, they invited this young uh, African lady who herself had a dad at the age of eight. I mean, her dad was a journalist and uh, uh, got actually uh, killed for his uh, ideas, you know, as well, he worked to, for the freedom to be a journalist, you know? And she said something that was really kind of a, uh, very quite beautiful. And I wanted to, uh, I made a little translation, it's very short, and uh, I wanted to share that with you. It's in contrast of what I talked earlier. When I was eight and I had understand that my, da my dad has died, I was left with a sensation to have been propelled into eternity and realized that there are things that will never come back. This experience has conditioned my relationship with time, with the world and everyone around me and left me with a permanent realization that life needs to be lived each moment. Yeah. And I thought that was a, this is a quite beautiful. <laughs> there's nothing like the moment. <laughs> you know, there's a eternity here and now, uh, infinite possibility, uh, embracing both uh, suffering and happiness with a big open heart, you know. and. Uh, seeing change and uh, uh, welcoming the wisdom that come with it, you know. So, uh, <clears throat> let's celebrate. <laughs> so, that's it. <laughs>